0: Well, good morning, church, and uh, welcome to worship, and dads, uh, happy Father's Day. And uh, because I am a dad, um, as I'm sure many of you know from every sermon illustration I've ever used being about my kids, uh, I figured I'd just start off today talking about what I want to talk about, and that usually is something related to Star Wars. So did you guys know? Uh, That in the original Star Wars movie, that's episode four, A New Hope, um, Darth Vader, uh, the main bad guy, one of the best bad guys ever, only has eight minutes of screen time in that entire movie. I know, right? It's surprising. It's shocking. I mean, when you think about that movie and, and, and you think about uh, the franchise that is Star Wars, uh, probably no other character is bigger, more iconic than Darth Vader. And yet in the original movie, only eight minutes of screen time. That's right. I've been thinking about that this week because I, I, I've actually been thinking of villains because we are dealing with one of the biggest villains in all of Axe, This week we're looking at Saul, and a lot like Darth Vader to this point, we haven't seen him a lot, and yet he's been behind the scenes. He seems to loom over everything. We get just a little bit about him just a few chapters before, where at the stoning of Stephen we're told that Saul is there and he's overseeing, he's actually holding the coats and approving of what is going on there at the stoning of Stephen. And so we don't know much about him, and yet he seems to be everywhere. And he's over everything. And, and as even Acts moves on and, and talks about some other things, you're kind of like, but wait a second. Well, what about that guy that we heard about? He, he seems to be kind of a big deal. He seems to be pretty big trouble. And now all of a sudden, like it's the last act. Uh, they're on their trench run. Uh, there he shows up. He's there. He's everywhere. And he is a force to be reckoned with. I, I've been thinking a lot about villains. I've, I've kind of been asking the question, um, what makes a good villain? Like, what is it uh, about a villain that makes them compelling, that, that makes you want to watch, that, that, that draws you in? You see, the best villains aren't the ones that are the kind of cartoonish, one-dimensional, hey, I want to take over the world, right? That, that stuff's kind of boring. That, that, that's left for kids' shows. Actually, the good villains in, in movies or, or books are the villains that are relatable, actually. And it's kind of a weird concept to think that villains can be relatable because none of us like to think of ourselves as the villain. But, but they're the ones that make you stop and think. Or they're the ones who they have an agenda. They have a reason for what they're doing. And, and actually, well, what's more is it, it makes a lot of sense. We, we can actually begin to see ourselves in their shoes. We can empathize with their point of view that, that as we're watching them, we're like, you know what? I mean, they kind of do have a point. Those villains are the ones that anytime you're talking about a great movie or a great book, it doesn't just have a great good guy, it has a great bad guy. Uh, One of the best villains, I think, in all of movies comes from one of my favorite movies, and uh, that is Javert in Les Miserables. And I say all of movies because I I, I know that it's written it's it's it, it comes from a book that was written by Victor Hugo uh, back in the 1860s. But uh, I've only ever seen uh, the movie uh, version. I've never read the book. And before you judge me too much, as I was thinking about this week, and I was like, oh, I really want to watch this movie. I was like, maybe I should read the book, or or maybe even listen to the book on Audible, because really, who has time to read, right? And and so I, I looked the book up on Audible, and um. It is 60 hours it takes to listen through Les Miserables. And, you know, what? in my house, the only thing that we have time to listen to or watch for 60 hours is Frozen. And so that was just kind of a non-starter. So when when I talk about Les Miserables, I'm talking about the 1998 version of the film with Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush, so good, one of my favorite films of all time. And uh, Javert is uh, the police detective. He actually kind of rises through the ranks throughout the course of the movie from a a, a prison uh, work camp guard uh, to a uh, main detective in a, a little town and then ultimately to a uh, uh, main detective and head of the police force in all of Paris. And, and so uh, during this movie, we see Javert. Javert is someone who is, um, he has a devotion to the law, to order that definitely is legalistic. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, Javert believes that all of society, all, all, all of, of life is, is meant to be ordered and, and not chaotic. And, and order only comes by rules and law. And so he has this complete devotion to such that he isn't willing to question law in any way and, and thinks that everyone should just blindly follow the laws that are put in place with no, no question as to why they're there or anything like that. And he, and he never even questions why he feels that way. Uh, His idea ultimately is that if you give on any part of the law, then it all crumbles. That it all goes away. That, That if you say, well, this part doesn't matter, or this part isn't good, then how do you not say then the next part isn't good? And where does it stop? It is a slippery slope. And what's more is he believes that redemption, the idea that someone can change, is a myth by, created by modern science. And, and so he says, look, these laws are put in place to, to keep the bad people from doing bad things. And if we, if we, if we cut corners on any of that, uh, then everything, all of society, will crumble as a result. You know what, like as, as you watch it, you're kind of like, I mean, I, I can see the logic. And, and even to a certain extent, I agree with him. I mean, as you watch Javert and, 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 and you see the main character, Jean Valjean, and you know his intentions and what he's doing, you're like, oh, come on, man, cut the guy some slack. But, but Javert has a point, right, that there needs to be order. That, that if chaos is allowed to reign, if no rules are followed, if no laws are observed, then who knows what will happen? What's more, if we decide that these aren't laws aren't good, who's to keep somebody else from deciding those laws aren't good? And so you find yourself uh, feeling kind of like, I, I mean, I kind of get what the guy is going at. And 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 so if you if you know the story of of Le if you don't, uh, Javert, there's Javert, and then actually the protagonist, the good guy, is, is this guy named Jean Valjean. He's he's actually a, a thief, and, uh, and and he's reformed, and, and and so he he becomes a caring, merciful, benevolent uh, person, and you see him doing all these good works. And yet in that time in France, it was illegal uh, for uh, former convicts to hold political office, which he does, and and he actually violates his parole and so it's this little breach of the law that Jean Valjean is guilty for and yet Javert cannot let it go no matter how much good Jean Valjean has done. And, and you see this distrust to where it comes to the climax at the end of that movie. But it's such an interesting story because it, he's not just this one-dimensional bad guy, I'm out to get you sort of thing. But he, he has a reason and his entire life is built a, a, around that idea. And, and so we can see ourselves actually kind of relating to him because he's a very complex individual. I I think as we get to this place in Acts and we see what Saul has done and what he is doing, we have to be very careful not to see Saul or the Pharisees, the the Jewish sect that he was a part of, as these one-dimensional bad guys. It's so easy to see Saul as, as some sort of a, uh, well, you know, this is a story about God working in the church and the church being formed, and we need a bad guy to kind of keep the story moving along, and so let's do that. And then Luke's like, oh, hey, you know, what, how great would it be if like the main bad guy actually became a good guy, and, and they did that sort of thing, right? That's not the case. That's not what's going on here. Saul is not to be seen here as just a, as a storyline plot ploy to keep things moving in an interesting direction. When we see him, or we see the Pharisees, or we even see other people that the message and good news of Jesus Christ comes up against in this book, if we fail to understand the depth of what people like Saul were, what they were about, what they built their life around, if we don't see that depth, we don't then understand what was, and what is, and what will happen, and how amazing it is, and how big it is. And so we need to understand actually a little bit more about Saul. What was fueling him? What his motivation was? What it was he was searching for and so desperate to see happen in his world? What we know about Saul by piecing uh, his letters together and and, and from other uh, various uh, sources, there's not a ton out there outside of what we have as far as his writings go. But we know that Saul grew up in Tarsus, learning the importance of Torah and faithfulness as a Pharisee. He, he was from a family of Pharisees. And so this devotion to God's word and to what God said he has done and what has, God has promised he will do primarily through the hope of a coming Messiah. Paul's, Saul's, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I am going to mess up so many times and give the Indian away and call this guy Paul, okay? But just know if I'm talking about Paul, we're also talking about Saul. So there you go. So it, his entire life was built around the coming of God's Messiah, the coming of God's kingdom. That God's way and how what God had promised to take place was indeed going to happen. But he also knew certain things had to be done. You see, that's where the difference between an optimist and someone who hopes as well. Is that you say, well, we can see and look around us that things are not right. So something has to be done with that. Something has to be done about that. You see, the pharisaical idea of the coming of the Messiah was all tied into God's people needed to be pure. God was not going to send his Messiah until the conditions were right. And if his people were off worshiping other gods, doing other things, uh, giving themselves into idolatry as well as immorality, then they weren't going to follow his Messiah when he came and declared the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And so it was those who were in tune with God's way, it was their job to make sure that God's people were pure. That things were kept in a proper order so that God would sin. They could actually be a part of the, the initiation, the advent of God's kingdom coming into being. And those like Saul, and particularly Saul himself, in this pharisaical tradition would have held up a a few key figures from Scripture as the examples of what it looks like to to be in tune and and to be on fire for the coming of God's Messiah and, and, and to want that more than anything else. Uh, The the first example of this was actually, it's kind of obscure, back in the book of Numbers, uh, a guy named uh, Finhas, who was a uh, grandson of Aaron, uh, the the original high priest. And uh, it's it's tied up all in the story of of Balaam and his donkey that that comes right before. And um, Balaam is contracted to uh, put a curse on Israel and finds out he's not able to do it. And and then he has this uh, crazy experience with his donkey actually talking to him and, and so Balaam isn't able to do what he's been hired to do, and yet Balaam needs to get paid. And so what Balaam does then is, is he tells uh, the king of Moab and some Midianite uh, kings, he, he says, you know what you should do? Um, you should send in a bunch of women. Uh, because these guys have been walking around the desert uh, for quite a while, and I, I, I think they're lonely. And, uh, and if uh, you can get them to practice immorality, immorality is the gateway to idolatry. And uh, that's a way uh, that you can undermine uh, the Israelites and make sure that they don't take over the land. This is right when they're about to uh, enter into the promised land. And so, uh, and so they do that, and uh, lo and behold, uh, the Israelites, they fall for it. And so what happens as a result of this immorality and idolatry is, um, is a plague comes upon the camp, and yet um, they don't seem to care. And, and so they keep doing this. And it gets so bad that uh, one guy actually takes his uh, girlfriend into his tent right in front of the tabernacle in front of Moses. And so Finhas seeing this and the, the text says being zealous. First time in scripture that this word zeal comes up. Being zealous for God and his righteousness. Actually goes into the tent and kills both of them with a single thrust of his spirit. Crazy story. But the thing is is that as soon as he does that, immediately, the plague stops. It's done. It's over. And, and, and we're told that God sees what Finhas does, and his zeal is counted as righteousness. And it sounds a lot like we're in Abraham all the way back in Genesis. Abraham had faith, and it says his faith was counted as righteousness. But in this place, Finhas is said to have been zealous for God, and his zeal was counted as as righteousness. Uh, The other story that uh, someone like Saul would have looked to would have been that uh, of of Elijah and and that story um, this uh, amazing uh, picture of what happens on on, uh, the top of Mount Carmel where uh, again Israel had fallen into idolatry and and they were worshipping a fertility called by the name of Baal and and so there are these uh, hundreds uh, of prophets of Baal and Elijah and and they face off. Hundreds of prophets versus one guy. If you can imagine the kind of Conviction it takes to stand one person, it gets hundreds, right? And this crazy story, long story short, Elijah wins and he orders the killing of all the prophets of Baal. And Elijah is lifted, lifted up as someone as zeal. In fact, in First Maccabees, which is a, a book that a historical Jude, a Jewish book that Saul would have read often. In the very first chapter of that book, it is Elijah and Finhas that are lifted up as those having zeal. And then Maccabees goes on to tell the story of a a group, a revolutionary group that overthrew a dictator who had desecrated the temple, that kicked them out, and they established the uh, Israelite kingdom for over a century. These are the stories that Saul would have taken to heart. These are the pictures and the images of what it looks like to care about the things of God. And what's more is what these stories would have resonated in his heart and in his mind is, zeal works. Being passionate about the things of God and what God wants and what God has promised to such a degree that you're willing to take action, even violent action, is something that God not only sees, he condones. He condones. And so Saul sees himself in the light of these two. It's so easy, again remember, it's so easy to see Saul as this one-dimensional bad guy and he's just out to wreck everything and take over the world and that sort of thing. But actually Saul would have seen himself in the same light as Finhas, in the same light as Elijah, fighting for what God wants. He wants the same thing that God wants and it's a good thing, right? Right? He wants the righteousness of God to be maintained. He wants God's people to remain pure and not go after idols and other gods. And he wants more than anything the coming of God's Messiah and his kingdom. He wants God's will to be done here and now on this earth as it is in heaven. And it's at that point in understanding that that I think we can all at least take our first step into understanding Saul a little bit better and say, you know what? I kind of see where he's coming from, right? It's for this very reason that Saul describes himself as zealous. In his letter to the church in Galatia, in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I For the traditions of my fathers. It's this very idea that Luke is echoing in the very first verse that Ed read first. There there in chapter 9, verse 1, let's look at it again together. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Luke is someone that knows Saul eventually, if if you know what happens, and we're looking at this conversion of Saul uh, this morning, and we'll look at it some more next week, Luke ends up working with Saul. He ends up being friends with Saul. And and, and so this isn't something where Luke is taking liberty and saying, hey, this guy is crazy. This guy is zealous. He's he's like over-the-top passionate about this thing. It's actually, Luke and Saul have talked about this. They've talked about ways like like. And so Luke is just echoing the same thing that later on Paul will tell us. That the entirety of his life is consumed by this desire. This, this word that Luke uses here where he says still breathing. He uses it intentionally because it is a word that every time it is used in Scripture, it, it, this word for breath, it is a word that denotes life and it denotes all life. It actually denotes the source of life. The crazy idea, right? That breath would be your source of life. And, and yet, intentionally, Luke says this to, to give us the idea that this idea, what, what Saul was after, that his hope for the coming of the Messiah and his desire to keep Israel pure so that could happen, it could happen sooner rather than later because they needed it so bad. That desire was the entirety of Saul's life. Everything was summed up. Everything about him could be described by his hope for God's Messiah to come. He was one-dimensional in that way. And look, I I, I know how bad this sounds. And and it's hard for us, I think, a lot of times to see Saul maybe in an objective way. Because we know, like we we know what he was doing and we know what the story is and we know what the right side of of, of things are. And and so we see him and and we see him describe himself as zealous and, and zealous is actually a word nowadays that has a very negative meaning, right? Nobody wants to be described as that. And so I know how bad it sounds, but the question is, is do we really despise this as much as we think we do? I grew up in the 90s and uh east of the Mississippi and so if you were east of the Mississippi in the 90s and you liked sports as much as I did um you were probably I won't say everybody but you were probably a Chicago Bulls fan and I was a big Chicago Bulls fan. I loved Michael Jordan and uh just thought he was like the greatest ever. And, and so you, you can imagine how excited I was when uh, a couple months ago, towards the beginning of, of the quarantine, when we had nothing else to do. Uh, ESPN announced that they were rushing the production of a documentary on the Chicago Bulls, a 10-part documentary, oh, so good, uh, on the Chicago Bulls final season and, and Michael Jordan's final season uh, with the Chicago Bulls. And, um, it was, it was fascinating. It was so fascinating to see all this backstory and all this other stuff. And it was kind of funny how they labeled it as, you know, here's the final season of the Chicago Bulls when it was really just all about Michael Jordan. But I mean, it was all about Michael Jordan anyway. So, um, one of the most striking moments though of that documentary was they were talking about Michael's will to win and his, and his will to push not just himself, but the people around him. And and how when he did that a lot of times, like he was pretty abrasive and he would say things to people and do things that um, basically, let's just say he's not a nice guy. And he actually got asked that question. Uh, The person making the film, they they asked him point blank It said, does it bother you that the cost of winning seems to have come um, with the price of people thinking you're not a nice guy? And he thought about it for a moment, and then he started explaining what it was he wanted. That his will to win was so great, and he wanted to win, but he didn't just want to win for himself. He he wanted to win for his teammates. He wanted them to experience that with them, and, and that that's the way he lives his life. And he and he lives he does that with everything. And you know what he said? You know, if you don't want to live your life that that way, that's fine. But that's how I'm going to live my life. And and so if you don't want to be a part of that, you don't have to. And and as he was describing this, he he just started he started crying. I mean, they talked about his dad dying, and he got kind of choked up about that and stuff, but I mean, it was this, it was this, mo- this moment where his like, entire life's philosophy, everything he had built his life on, winning and winning at all costs, had come into question. And he was so built into that, that, that it, it, just, this emotion came pouring out of him. And, and, and for all of the things that we can say, yeah, he's maybe not the nicest of guys and you know, he did some things that I don't think you know, people should do and treated people in a pretty rough way. The truth is we celebrate people. We celebrate people that display things like passion, People that are willing to give themselves totally to, to a, a, a cause and a thing. And what's more is we know we celebrate it because actually one of the biggest markers to us that our life is not where it should be or how we want it to be is when we look at ourselves and we say, man, I don't really feel like I have any passion in my life. There's nothing I get worked up about. There's, there's nothing that I, I, I would really sacrifice much for. I think most midlife crises are probably that way where we look around and we say, I mean, what do I really care about and does anything I do during the day really about anything that I'm passionate for? Well, we celebrate and lift up people that show a, a, a devotion to things like, like Michael Jordan did because we know that it's that devotion that, that makes people great, that, that leads people to somewhere to be able to do things that, that are not easy to do, maybe even not popular. Because as much as we can point out the flaws of these people and, the, and, and how, oh, okay, they're great over here, but maybe not in, in this other area, but at least we know that these people are sincere, right? That they're unwavering. That, that they're actually willing to stand for what they believe in no matter what it might cost them. And in fact, if we're honest, we want to be like that, right? Right? I mean, we would love to be that devoted to something. We would love to show that amount of passion. We would love to be able to excel in something to where people look and they say, wow, they were about that thing. Saul wanted God's way. In fact, he wanted God. Saul was passionate about it. He was devoted to it. He was sincere. He was willing to stand up when others wouldn't. When others were saying, we should just let people go about their way. And if it's of God, it'll succeed. And if it's not, Paul said, we can't do that. God's way matters too much. It needs to be pure and it needs to be pure now. And quite frankly, if there's anybody that that view should resonate with, it should be us in the church, right? Right? That maybe if we can take a step back, if we we have the luxury of looking again at the whole picture and and knowing what Saul did and, and, and seeing this thing clearly from 360 degrees, but truthfully, if we were in Saul's place, would we do it differently? Or at least would we not admire his willingness to stand up and say what needs to be said to even take the action that some might cringe at and yet now is the time, if not now, when sort of thing? I think we would. So maybe one of the first steps for us as we're looking at this passage this morning is just to say, you know what? I can see what Saul is getting at. I I can understand. Might not agree with the methods. Might not see it totally eye to eye. But okay, I get it. And to a degree I can respect it. I can respect somebody that cares about God's way and what God says in his word and his righteousness and his holiness being protected I, I, I can I like that and so Saul isn't just this bad guy he's somebody that wants something very good and yet we got to say there was something that was off right I mean, when we look at this, Saul's commitment to this idea, for as good as it was, and it started in a great place, I want God, I want God's thing, I want God's way, and I'm gonna help make the way, his commitment to this idea had actually led him somewhere that doesn't seem to be too healthy, right? I mean, as we look, his passion, first of all, as we see in verse one that we just read about, that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, we see that his passions left him somewhat unhinged, right? I mean, Saul is just like, Behemoth. He's going all over the place. He's crazy mad. Another thing that we don't maybe understand just reading this is, is that Saul's passion had made him desperate. It, it says there as Luke goes on, he says, He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Nuts that Saul would do this. You know why? Because Saul is a Pharisee and the high priest, he's a Sadducee. This is like I don't know, a a UK, a Kentucky Wildcat fan going to a Louisville Cardinal and saying, hey, let's get together to beat Indiana. Like and I know that means nothing. I mean, okay, so Oregon Ducks and Oregon State Beavers being like, okay, let's let's team up to beat the Washington Huskies. Be like, no, like I you can fend for yourself sort of thing, right? The Sadducees and the Pharisees did not associate together. And, and, and yet Saul going and asking for permission from a Sadducee high priest to do what he wants to do, that's how desperate he was. And we see this happening with the arrest and the trial of Jesus that, that, that at, at times that these people are so passionate and yet they're missing the point of what God is doing, it leads them to a point of desperation where they will do anything to hang on. To what they have at the threat of losing it. And so we see his passion has made him desperate. And and, and then we also see that his passion has led him to see people as an obstacle rather than as part of the plan. We know that God's heart is for the redemption of the world, and not just the geographical world, but but humanity and and people, and and God's desire is to bring people to him. That was the point of Israel, right? He said, you are going to be a priestly nation, to to go to the other nations, and, and to share my glory and my message and the good news of the coming of my kingdom, so that they will look to me. But instead of that, Paul's passion had led him to a place It started in a good spot, but he had gotten somewhere to where he sees these people now as an obstacle to be dealt with and, if need be, killed so that the path could be clear for God's Messiah. And we look at that and we're like, man, you're kind of off there, but Saul couldn't see it. And so it's because of that that on the road to Damascus, Saul is stopped and asked a simple question question. There in verse 3 and 4, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus asked Saul, Saul, A really simple question. It's not this like big, hey, you know, here, let me fix your theology and see what's going on. He just comes down and he says, Saul, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? This question of why is huge. And it is the question that we all know is the most important question in life. And it's the question we hate the most. And the reason that we know that this is the most important question to ask, and yet the one that we hate the most, is because it is always the first question we will ask anybody else, and it's always the last question we ask ourselves. My kids throw anything across the room, and my first question is always, why did you throw it? What in the world was going through your mind that you thought it was good to throw my phone across the room? When I yell at my kids for them seemingly doing nothing, my wife's first question is always why, and I say, don't ask me that question. I don't want to think about it. We know it is so important to know what is driving us. What is the reason that we're doing what we're doing? We know it so well because we're so ready to ask every single person that we do not agree with, why in the world would you do that? And yet... How often, I would say hardly ever, do we willingly ask ourselves, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do I feel the way I feel about that? Why am I so strongly entrenched in my opinion about this particular thing? Is it for me? Or is it for someone else? I think there's a few reasons why we're so slow if not totally unwilling, to ask ourselves the question of why and, and to ask it on a regular basis. I, I, I think maybe the first one we could say is we're, we're just, we're just flat-out afraid that we might be wrong. Um, you, you don't have to deal with being wrong if you don't ever ask yourself right. Th- that our intentions are not right, right? And, and, and I mean, that, that's like, well, duh. Like, we're all afraid that we're wrong. None of us want to be fact-checked, you know, when we're, you know, really. And what's better yet, none of us want to be fact-checked about our intentions. We're afraid that we might be wrong because often what we're talking about, these passions that we have in our life, the things that we are devoted to, that we're committed to, that we're sincere about, that we're, that we feel so strongly about, that we're willing to take a stand when it is so difficult. We're afraid that we might be wrong about those things because we have built our entire life around this idea, just like Saul had or better get our identity is wrapped up all in it, and if somehow this is proven to not be the way things are, if this is somehow, if we can be shown that maybe we haven't been in this for the reasons we thought we were in it, then we're fearful that it, it's all going to come crashing down around us. And so, we, and so we run from this question of why. We, we never ask ourselves. We never get to that place. And anytime anybody kind of questions that, we we throw out labels and we and we shut the conversation down, and we just say, "Don't ask me that question. How dare you ask me that question?" Because what if it all did? Now the great thing is, is that we're promised as followers of Jesus that it won't. See, that's the promise of Jesus is that we can be asked this question of why. And if we're found that maybe we're not in this or we're about this thing or for the reasons that we thought we were, or it started out in a good place and we've kind of gotten off at some point. And Jesus says, well, hey, like if I'm in your foundation, then you don't have to worry about it all crumbling around you because the thing that really matters is still here and nothing is ever moving that. But it's hard for us to remember that. And so we dig in deeper, we, we, we get more passionate, more zealous for it, right? That might be one of the reasons why we're slow to do this. I think maybe the other reason that we can be, um, we, 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 just, we just don't think we need to ask this question of ourselves, or be asked, particularly by the Holy Spirit, is that we, 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 can, we can associate our identity in Jesus with a purity of intentions, what I mean is that we, we, we've given our, our life to Christ at some point, and we think that because we've given our life to Jesus and, and, and we're about him, that then every thought we have, especially every passion, every desire, is going to be from him and about him and for him. And so we think, well, if I'm this passionate about it, if I care this deeply, if this resonates in my soul to such an extent, then it must mean that it matters that much to God. In the exact same way. The crazy thing about this idea, if we think that way, now I don't think any of us ever say this out loud, but we think and we act like it. The crazy thing is like, it's basically the same thing as if I said, you know what? I said in my, I said in my vows 12 years ago that I love my wife. And so now everything I do for my, towards my wife is loving I don't think she would agree with that, just a stab in the dark. I don't know. But it's the same idea. And I think we can all hear how crazy that is, right? That because I gave my life to Jesus however many years ago, I don't have to ask why I'm doing things because it's obviously all about him. Now, it might be, but it doesn't hurt to check and ask a question every now and then, right? See, just because we have given our life to Christ doesn't mean that every intention, every thought, everything that we want, every passion that we have and we feel so strongly are about is from God all the time. It isn't. But you see, when we find that maybe it hasn't all been about him, totally, 100%, the great news is that God offers us redemption through repentance. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. As someone in ministry, I resonate with this a lot, and it is really challenging because, obviously, the stuff you're about—it's easy to say it's of God, it's for God. You have biblical reasons, but even more than that, it is a vocation that, really, whether or not you wanted to, it becomes a part of your identity. And and I, and I say that not in in a bragging way or anything like that. It's just, I mean. When, I don't know, when you're an an insurance salesman, people ask you what you do, and you say, well, I I sell insurance, right? But that's not like who you are. That doesn't even probably begin to describe like what you're interested in, and your family, and your values, and all those sorts of things. But someone asks you, a pastor, and and it's like, that says a ton about you. There's a way you act, and what you say, and what you do. And so I, I, I the longer I'm in ministry, I, I I can see how you would build this identity and and the worry of getting to some point far down the road and having to ask the question of why am I doing this? why, why am I in this? What, what's this all for? Is it for me or is it for christ it, it would be a scary thing to ask because what if what if it has been about me? my entire identity is built on something that isn't pure, isn't right, isn't what I thought it was. Well, what, what if I'm asked to give it up or, or, or to change it or, 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 or to say that this doesn't work anymore or I've been doing it wrong? Then does that mean that like, everything, even myself, just doesn't matter? I, I mean, that's a, that's a scary thing. The, the, the scariest question I, I think in ministry is, is to ask yourself, does the ministry need me or do I need the ministry? Why am I doing this? Do I get some kind of satisfaction? Do I get some kind of self-worth out of this? Or is this truly what God wants and he has me here to do it and, and, and that's great, but it, it really isn't about me? Or am I in it because it is about me? Because of all of those things. It gives me importance. It gives me something to do. It's these questions that I, 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 as I, I guess I'm beginning to grapple with, which is kind of weird in your 30s, but I, I, as I think about these things, I, I'm so impressed with Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave. And what Pastor Dave has done over these last couple years of feeling God's leading, of God saying that the church needs to go in a new direction, and Dave recognizing that, and Dave also having the willingness and the humility to say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Does the ministry need me, or do I need the ministry? What is my intention in all this? What is this about? Am I passionate for music? Or am I passionate for Jesus? I think you hear this struggle because Dave is able to say, I mean, I've heard him say it so many times of, 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 of saying that, well, this is what I would do. Dave said, Dave loves his job, what he does, and he's passionate about it. And he would do it for several more years if he could. He's in good health. But Dave has a sense that God wants him to do something else. Than what he would do. And Dave has asked the hard question, why am I doing this? Saul, Saul, why? Dave, Dave, why? You know, I'm not saying Dave's like Saul. That's a, maybe that's a bad correlation to make. Dave, why are you doing this? And Dave's answer has unequivocally been, well, because of Jesus. And so When he has asked him to step away to retire, maybe earlier, to retire definitely earlier than he would like to, Dave has been willing to do that because his passion is not the music, it's the one it's about. To, To be clear, music about Jesus isn't the same as Jesus. And while one might lead you to another, and they seem so close and so intricately connected, if our passion, when our passion is about one or the other, they will ultimately eventually lead us in very different places and we will be about very different things. Saul had an idea of what God's righteousness looked like and because of that, he had an idea already in his mind what God's Messiah would look like and that had led Paul somewhere he didn't intend He hadn't done the hard thing. He hadn't asked himself and stopped and said, why am I doing that? And so the result is then what we read next there in verses eight and nine. After seeing this vision of the light, it says Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. It's so easy for us to read this and say, wow, because of this interaction with God, Saul's now blind, but the reality is Saul had been blind for quite a while. It's just finally Saul's physical limitations had caught up to his spiritual blindness. And that happens to all of us. We we can be going down a a path so sure that what we're seeing is clear, that that our passion is able to melt away all the confusion. We can see things other people can't. And yet what the reality is is that we have become so blind that we don't even know where we're going. We can't see the bigger picture. And people around us are like, ah, you know, I just don't know. This doesn't seem right. Maybe you're a little off. And we're like, nope, I'm the only one that sees it clearly. And we run straight ahead full speed. Saul hasn't seen how far off he's gotten. He's beginning to. See, he, he was all about living a life where he was removing obstacles to the coming of the Messiah. Do you see how ironic that is? That Paul was about, Saul was about, Clearing the way for the coming of the Messiah and anything that threatened that, that would get in the way of the good news of God being shared and spread and coming about was had to be dealt with. And Saul believed in it so passionately that he wasn't willing to ask the question, why am I doing this? And is this really God's way? Is this for me or is it for God? And so because of that, Saul had become the very thing he swore to destroy. The truth of Saul's life shows us that unexamined passion will lead to unintended consequences. If we are not willing to ask ourselves to open ourselves up to, to invite the Holy Spirit to search our intentions and to search our heart, we will start in a place that is all about something that it ends up being the complete opposite opposite to. That we will be about salvation while quenching it and and, and killing it in the life of people. In the final scene of of, of Les Miserables, um, Javert has finally been able to capture Jean Valjean. And... uh, he, he has him uh, in handcuffs on, on the side of a river, and he has a gun to his head, and he, and he asks uh, Valjean. Uh, Valjean had a chance earlier to kill Javert, and he didn't. He actually helped him, and he saved him. And it was an act of mercy that just blew Javert away. He, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't comprehend it. He had nothing in his life to—he uh, was so blind to the idea of mercy and that people could change Um that he didn't know how to react to. And so, so he has Valjean on, on, on the edge and, and he says, I'm going to give you, a, 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 well, he says, why, why didn't you kill me? And Valjean says, it's, I have no right to kill you. And he says, you know what? I, I've thought long and hard about this. I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. And then he gives his life's theme. His thesis statement for his life, uh, almost, and he says, "I have tried to live my life without breaking a single rule." The two, the two ideas. He's been faced with mercy, and he sees what mercy is, and yet he says, "But this is what I've been about, and, and I don't know how you. Change it. I've gone so far down this path. That I, I see the need for mercy in the world and in my own life, and yet everything about me has been built upon this thing. And so what?" The way he reconciles these these two things is he takes the handcuffs off of Valjean. He puts them on himself. He says, you're free, get out of here. And he falls over the side, Javert that is, over the side and plunges into the water and drowns. He is drowned by his own unexamined passion. A life that was started out in a place of saying, What is needed is order for the the ability of, of society to function. For basically people, right? That laws are made to protect people. And yet what is one of the greatest ways to protect people because we all screw up? It's mercy. But Javert can't see that. And so his life has taken him to a place. And when he finally does see it, it's too much. And it's all coming crumbling down around him. And so his unexamined passion has led him to a place where he is drowned by his own zealousness. Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, when talking about Javert, he said, Javert's misguided and self destructive pursuit of justice is more tragic than villainous. That's the truth about all of us. That when we allow ourselves, our unexamined passions, to run free in our life, we're not villains. There's so many, there's so few people that you will come across in your life that, that, that are actually like have evil intentions, just pure evil. And so we, we, we see something like, like Saul here and we're like, I could never be like that. I'm not that type of person. But we have to understand he's not this one-dimensional bad guy. That, that his life up to this point is more tragic than it is villainous. And that with that, we can identify. That we can find ourselves in a place of tragedy. Maybe, probably not villainy. That our lives can, may have started in a place of truth. Uh, the truth about God and Jesus and, and the things of God and his righteousness and, and what that looks like. And yet it's tragic. It ends up being tragic how we can't see how that Passion, being unexamined of why we're doing it and why we're taking the actions that we're taking. Left unexamined, that we can't see how it's taken us so far from the mercy and the love and the compassion and the grace that God shows and desires for the people that take his name, call themselves Christian and followers of Jesus Christ. That our zeal for truth has led us to a place that we're willing to kill people that stand in the way of it. Or, or, or that our lives have, have been built around, started in a place of service, that we just want to serve God and serve his people and, and, and do the things that need to be done with, with no thought of ourselves. And yet, that begins to be our passion. And we don't ask ourselves continually, why am I doing this? God, is this for you or is it for me? How am I allowing my own passions, my own thoughts, my own desires? That become the devotion of my life and not you. And we can't see how beginning in that good place has turned into ownership, even aggression towards those that we see as a threat to what we have, and ultimately to despair over what feels lost, rather than rejoicing over what has been given and what has been done. That's not villainy. It's just tragedy. And we see it time and time again. And the biggest question is we are not willing to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and our intentions and to ask us why. Why are you so passionate about that? Why do you care so much? Is it for God? Or is it turned into your own thing? This little question of why, it is so scary. But the good news for all of us is, is that it shouldn't be for a follower of Jesus. Because in the moment that the question is asked, it is not a question that comes with condemnation. Rather, it is a question that offers us repentance. Why? If it is not for the right reasons, own it. Say it. Admit it. It has been about something else God, I am sorry that I have made it this thing that has become more about me than you. And you know the great thing is is that repentance is offered and it is encouraged because once repentance is given, redemption can be extended. And in redemption, we find Jesus, who is the one it all started with and the one it needs to remain with. Why? Why? Is this a passion? Is it for God or is it for yourself? And if it is for yourself, do not hesitate to offer that back to Him and say, I'm sorry for the thing. I have made this. God, I give it back to you. I give myself back to you. Will you continually work to te- check the intentions of my heart? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we would ask that you do that right now. Lord, the the things that we are passionate about, whatever it is that we think of that we are so firmly devoted to, Lord, would would we open ourselves up to this difficult probing question? Would Would we allow your Holy Spirit to search us out? And Lord, would we be honest with the answer that we give? Father, is it for you or is it for ourselves? Thank you for the repentance and the hope and the redemption that you offer us. Thank you, Lord, that you stop us short of destruction. Lord, would we take that offer? And would we accept the new life and the hope and the joy and the mercy and the grace that comes along with it? It's in your name we pray, amen.